When a parent holds their infant for the very first time, the look that they have in their eyes as they're looking at that newborn child, just knowing the purity and the beauty of that child. I was thinking about if we all were raised consistently throughout our life with that message that we are beautiful. And we're not talking about the physicality. We're talking about the spirit of us, the soul of us. What a different life some of us would be experiencing right now if that was the consistent messaging that we got from our parents, the adults in our lives, our teachers, those people of influence in our lives, that they held us as sacred and beautiful. Closer to home, I think about the church. And I think about how in many churches, many Christian churches, the message is anything but you are beautiful. The message is actually in many churches exactly the opposite, that inherently, fundamentally, you're not beautiful. You are flawed and you are sinful. To me, that's, and I've said this before, that's spiritual malpractice. That is spiritual malpractice, and it's simply not true. It is simply not true. So this song and the message of this song really fits so tightly, so perfectly with this idea of the divine spark within us. It is certainly an idea that we hold to be true in unity. We didn't create it. We didn't make it up. It's certainly an idea that the transcendentalists, and we're going to be looking at them this month, held to be true. And it's actually very biblically solid. The challenge for most people who say that they take the Bible literally is that they haven't really read it. They have had some religious authority tell them what it means instead of actually reading it themselves to understand what is written and the vast contradictions in it to begin with. There's no way a person could truly live literally by the words of the Bible because it's impossible to do so because of the contradictions. In the very first creation story, or in the first chapter of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, there are two creation stories. Most people don't realize that. One creation story is the story from which this idea that we are somehow flawed and imperfect comes from. The other creation story is a story that, has, that gives us our roots in this idea of the divine spark, that we are made in the image and after the likeness of God, very different than the other creation story that connects to the fall of Adam and Eve. And so this is all what was going on in my mind as I was listening to, to this song and thinking about the divine spark within us. Our unity movement is part of a larger movement called the New Thought Movement. And we began in the late 1800s 
but we have our roots that go way, way, way back. Our roots can be traced through, they don't originate with, but they can be traced through the transcendentalists. How many of you remember learning about the transcendentalists in school, high school, in college? I don't know when might have been the last time that you read one of Emerson's essays or, or thought about the teachings of the transcendentalists, maybe not for a while, but their teachings sound so much like who and what we teach and attempt to practice in unity. Transcendentalism is a school of American theological and philosophical thought. It began in the the 1900s, or no, it began in the 18, in, in the 19th century, so the 1800s. The key figures that I've been pulling from as I put together this series, this series is Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and Walt Whitman. And they all, they're not the only transcendentalists, but they all shared this certain kind of belief, and not only a belief, not only a spiritual belief and a philosophical belief, but a real commitment to living their lives by that belief. Unity is very much that. Unity is not just saying, here's what we believe, but unity is really about take these beliefs, these principles, these practices, and actually live your life by them. Let these ideas shape and inform the way that you live your life. The transcendentalists emphasize the importance of individualism. They emphasize the importance of self-reliance. And they emphasize the importance of our connection with nature and how our time in nature and our connection with nature could help us have transcendent experiences. You may have a favorite transcendentalist. I'd say mine has got to be Emerson and then, and then Thoreau. And in this series, we're going to be taking a look at the, the main themes of transcendentalism and, and how they still can impact us in a very practical way, in the way that we think about life and in the way that we approach our life and in the way that we treat one another. Their core teachings, as I've said, have to do with transcendence and individuality, have to do with intuition and emotion, have to do with idealism and reform. Does any of that sound like what we talk about in New Thought? I think it absolutely sounds like what we talk about in New Thought. And so unity and the New Thought movement really emerged in the late 19th century. The Fillmores wrote their first magazine, the Fillmores being the co-founders of Unity. They called their magazine Modern New Thought, and they began that magazine in 1889. Charles and Myrtle studied the transcendentalist. Ernest Holmes, the founder of the Science of Mind, also studied the transcendentalist. The transcendentalists, though, had their opposition, just as we today in this way of thinking and this um, spiritual practice have those who disagree with us, right, who see things very differently than we do, the transcendentalists did as well. In opposition to their way of thinking about life and their way of living life was the materialistic view. The materialistic view that said, basically, science 
It's the only thing that matters, that if you can't measure it, if you can't see it, if you can't touch it, if you can't feel it, if you can't experience it directly, then it really doesn't exist. Also in opposition to this very transcendent way of thinking and living, this way of thinking living that says that there is more than just this physical form, that there is this divine energy, this divine experience that we can have. In opposition to that was not only the materialistic view, but the traditionalists. Emerson got himself in a heck of a lot of trouble, had a lot of people disagreeing with him when he gave his Divinity School address at Harvard. The traditionalists didn't want this free thinking. The traditionalists needed their orthodoxy. The traditionalists needed to have control over the way people thought. Traditionalists came from a very authoritarian point of view. The church has all the answers. We'll tell you what the answers are. Do not dare to ask any questions. We'll tell you what to think. And we will shame you if you don't think the way that we think. And here are the transcendentalists saying, mm-mm, mm-mm, no. We don't need all that. There is another way to experience life, a better way to experience life. And then the pragmatists who were looked at the transcendentalists as a little too idealistic, a little too visionary perhaps, a little too like this last part of, part of our mission statement, are holding to the belief and the willingness to stand for, give voice to, and work toward a world that can work for all, toward healing for our world. The pragmatists, in opposition to the transcendentalists, would say, you know, you're just, you're just too idealistic. Well, I don't know about you, but I think we need people who are idealistic. I think we need to hold a vision of what is possible for ourselves, right, as individuals, what's possible for us, whether it's healing or happiness, financial well-being, whatever that looks like for us to hold that vision for ourselves and work toward that, but to not just hold it for ourselves, to hold it in a larger context, to want it not only for ourselves, but to want it for each other, to want to have peace and harmony, to want to have a world that works for all. And so... I want to explore today this, this very fundamental theme that the transcendentalists had, which has to do with this idea of the divine spark within us, the God seed within us, that this divine reality could be experienced by the ordinary person, that this divine reality, this divine essence didn't need an intermediary, doesn't that also sound like what Jesus said? Jesus said some of the same things, some of the same things. Emerson kind of really became, I think, a focal point in the transcendentalist movement and teaching as a result of the address that he gave at Harvard, his Divinity School address in 1838, in which he really argued for a much more direct experience of the divine. I think of Meister Eckert's teaching, the 13th century German mystic, who really 
taught and believed we needed to have a firsthand and immediate experience of God, direct experience of God, not something that was connected to or dependent upon an orthodox dogma or creed or some sort of intermediary telling us about it, but rather us to have that experience ourselves. Let me ask you just by a nod of the head, have any of you had what you would say is an experience of the divine? Okay, I do see quite a few of you nodding your head. Did you need a religious person to get you there? No. No, you did. Did you need to know what the Bible says to get you there? Or the Bhagavad Gita? Or the Tao Te Ching? No. Those things might have kind of helped indirectly, but some of those things could have actually hindered your experience. I think it's got to be much harder to experience this essence of the divine presence or the divine reality if we feel inherently flawed. That's a significant stumbling block, or can be a significant stumbling block. So there are a few ideas I want to speak to directly about this idea of the divine spark. First of all, the transcendentalists, with regard to their consistent belief in the inherent goodness within everyone, with the, that there is this spark of God, this spark of divinity, this spark of light within everyone, they believed that it was important to seek one's own path to the transcendent experience of that. To seek one's own path to the transcendent experience of that. Can you see where that could have caused them some problems with the church in their day? Absolutely, absolutely. To seek one's own path. Jesus said some of the same things. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven being within you. It doesn't come from observation. You can't say it's over there or it's over here because it's within you. How can anybody but you access what's within you? Only you can do that. Before the transcendentalist, he was pointing the same, same sort of direction, the inward direction in what we call the Lord's Prayer. The only thing that he gave as a response, the only thing the disciples ever asked him to teach them how to do, despite supposedly seeing him do all sorts of miracles, the only thing they wanted Jesus to teach them to do was to pray. And the prayer he gave them was really not as much a prayer as it was a series of affirmations. If you actually read it, it's a series of positive statements. We would call them today affirmations beginning with Abba, our Father, unifying us, collecting us, pointing us to the One. Emerson said, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Find your own path. Find your own way. Seek your own experience of transcendence. I picked up my very old copy of Emerson's essays. And I was looking at it this morning. Let me see if I can find the page I'm wanting to find now. 
you know, the challenge with old books is that pages start to fall apart, right, and they fall out. Do you ever pick up a book that was a favorite of yours and really had an influence in your life at a certain time, and you marked in the book, and then you pick it up years later? Do you ever look at what you marked at? And then kind of, does it take you back to what you must have been maybe dreaming about or a problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, it's kind of like a peek into where we were at a certain point in our life. So these were things I highlighted um, a while back, and they so fit with this idea of seeking your own path to, to transcendence. I highlighted, a man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flash flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Then he goes on to say, we but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. We but half express ourselves. What is this idea of the divine light within? It is meant to be expressed in and through us as fully as we can, right? Not to half express it, not to be ashamed of its brilliance, but to do everything we can to remove whatever it is within us that is blocking its expression. With regard to this divine light, the transcendentalists repeatedly encouraged people to listen to their inner voice, to listen to their inner voice. Again, how do you think that would have rested with the leaders of the church of the day? Listen to your inner voice. I, no, no, if I tell you to listen to your inner voice, which I tell you often and I try to practice myself, it means your inner voice may be contrary to what the church says you should do or believe, right? Have you ever felt or sensed your own inner voice and disregarded it. Nod your head if you did. Did it work real well? Pro probably not. In most, in most cases, it, it doesn't. Have you ever heard that still, small voice? And hearing is a, a very limiting word because it's not always that we hear that still, small voice in the same way that you're hearing my voice right now. It can be a knowingness, a sense, a, a gut feeling. Have you ever received that and felt like, oh my gosh, that's really a big order. You want me to do what, God? Can I really? Has that ever happened to you? Nod your head if you have. Have you ever heard it in a mundane way? in a very kind of sort of ordinary, practical way, and listen to it, and they said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I did. Nod your head. Of course you have. Listen to your inner voice. Thoreau believed spending time in nature and living a simple, deliberate life could help one become better able to be tuned into that, that inner voice. Some of that was the origins, or the impetus, I should say, 
for him spending the time he spent in nature for his work in, in Walden Pond. Thoreau said, not until we are lost do we begin to understand ourselves. Not until we are lost do we begin to understand ourselves. Could that be true? I think so. I know in my own experiences when I have felt lost, that feeling of loss, being lost, has forced me to go much deeper inside to question, to try to understand, to go deeper into my prayer, to go deeper into, into mindfulness practice, to try to understand because I've felt lost. I felt lost. Margaret Fuller, who was a prominent figure in the transcendentalist movement, really stood for for women and for helping women to, to value themselves and to, to believe in their own inner guidance, their own inner, inner voice. She too emphasized turning within. She may not have used those same words that we use today, but it was the same thing that she was pointing to, the same thing. Jesus pointed us inward as well. He said, why are you so concerned about the outer? You pay no attention to the inner. Take care of the inner first, and the outer will take care of itself. I was thinking about this too with regard to, to Jesus, this idea of listening to our, our own intuition, our own inner voice. Much of the way that Jesus taught was by question. Did you realize that? He taught by story and parable, taught by example, but he really didn't talk much by direct narrative. Even the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the, 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 the nucleus of his teachings, scholars do not believe that he got to a mount and gave this full beautiful thing that we now call, because of how it rests in the Gospel of Matthew, as the Sermon on the Mount, that it was Sayings of his, yes, pulled together, sayings from different times pulled together into this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. But if you take that away, not that you should, but so much of the way that he tried to teach was by questions. What do questions cause a person to have to do? Think, right? Think, think, think. And so this idea of listening to our inner voice asking those deeper questions of ourselves, and then being willing to wait, because sometimes we do have to wait, for that intuition, for that sense, for that guidance. With regard to this divine spark, the transcendentalists also shared a commitment to encouraging one another to be true to themselves, to be their authentic selves. Brene Brown, in her wonderful work, around principles of authenticity and wholehearted living did not originate the idea of being your authentic self. And neither did the transcendentalists either. I'm sure that we could go back to the first forms of recorded history and find some of these same concepts there. Why? Why do you think? Because they're universal. Absolutely, because they're universal. That's why we still talk about them today. 
That's why people can write books about these age-old ideas today, and they might sound fresh and new, because it's a new generation listening, new life circumstances and experiences that we're having individually and collectively, and therefore they sound a little bit different, but it's still the same principles. It's still the same truth. The importance of being true to ourselves, encouraging authentic self-expression. I think of our teachers in our community. I think of parents. I think of if we really did everything we could to stand for that with our young people, it would be a magical world, a magical world. Did any of you ever grow up hearing a message that somehow your authentic self was not right? Am I the only one that got that? I remember vividly, I, I remember stuff from church, and my church experiences weren't that bad. But I did come through a Lutheran teaching, a Lutheran church. I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. I was not taught to believe in original blessing. I was taught to believe in original sin, that somehow I was flawed. But I also got a message early on that I was, I shouldn't be the way that I am. I shouldn't have the mind I have. I shouldn't have the drive I have. I shouldn't voice the things I voiced because no man would ever want to marry me. That was a message I got from my father when I was about 12. I loved him. That message did a tremendous amount of harm. He didn't mean it to do harm. I know he didn't mean it to do harm. But just because we don't mean to harm one another out of our own ignorance or out of our own fear, we can say things to one another. And especially if we're saying these things to young people, they can go so deep into our heart and soul that it can take quite a lot of time to mend that, to heal that. And so the transcendentalists, encouraging one another. They even tried to create a community, and I may talk about that in a, a subsequent lesson, Brook Farm, where they could live together in a way to really support one another in their beliefs and their practices and authenticity being one piece of that. Margaret Fuller, remember, one of the, the premier women transcendentalist, female transcendentalist, said, genius is not so much a talent as it is a beam of light from the abstract universal. Thoreau said the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Emerson said what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Oh my goodness. That's like Super-duper vitamins for the soul. Probably sounds really corny to say something like that. But how much we probably need to be reminded of these kinds of things, that this is not just true to the person sitting next to you. This is not just true of the person that you maybe most admire or that you think, it ha or that you think has it most together. This is true of all of us. There is 
untapped potential and genius within us. What lies behind us, our past, what lies before us, the future we may be fretting over or worrying about, are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. This line from Walt Whitman I really like, I exist as I am, that is enough. I exist as I am, that is enough. Say that with me. I exist as I am, that is enough. If you're inclined to do so, maybe touch your heart or your chest and say that softly to yourself. I exist as I am, that is enough. Just exactly as you are right now, that is enough. Doesn't mean you can't still grow. It doesn't mean that there may not be some things that need healing or tweaking or changing. If you're a 12-stepper, it doesn't mean don't do your moral inventory. But it does mean that right where you are right now, you are enough. You are enough. We would change our lives and we would change the world if we all believed that and supported one another in that. And so in closing, I just want to throw out a couple of questions for you. Maybe some call to action or homework here. So what is your path and are you walking it? What is your path and are you walking it? Are you listening to your inner voice? Do you make time for it? Are you listening to it? Do you make time for it? And last, are you be tr being true to you? Not what somebody told you you should be, but are you being true to who you really are? Live with those questions for a while and live into the answers that you get from a deep, sincere asking of them. Namaste. Namaste.